This morning the church celebrates the epiphany, the epiphany of the Lord. Epiphany means revelation or unveiling or maybe manifestation. And thus, on this day what we're celebrating is the epiphany, the unveiling of Christ to the Gentiles. In the Gospels, he's revealed to the shepherds and to Israel. Today we celebrate his unveiling to the Gentiles. And the Gospel lesson from Matthew 2 was the story of Magi from the East, Gentiles, Gentiles, being led by a mysterious light to come and worship Christ. The Magi are, they're not simply... um, a wonderful story, they're the beginning of the fulfillment of the oracle in Isaiah 60, which was our Old Testament lesson. And it's, it's the mystery of this surprising inclusion of Gentiles, which is the subject of our text, which is the Ephesians 3 text. This is the traditional New Testament reading for Epiphany that might seem odd to you, or maybe you've never thought about it. Um, This is one of those cases where the lectionary has a tremendous amount of wisdom to impart. Um, The Ephesians 3 text is an epiphany text because in a real sense it's the Apostle Paul's commentary on Isaiah 60, which is the Old Testament lesson, and Matthew 2, the story of the Magi, which is the Gospel lesson. Now, in in the book of Ephesians, at the end of the second chapter, Paul sets forth this this grand reality of what the church fathers, the early church fathers, called the third race. The third race is neither Jew nor Gentile. Up till then, the world could be divided that way. But in Christ, a new thing has happened. There's a third race. It's the one new man in Christ. Now, I uh, suspect that we, don't, we have not assimilated this in our thinking. The implications of this are enormous, and that's why Paul unpacks them in Ephesians here. But Christian, the word Christian, is a new kind of ethnicity. It's not a person who happens to have a set of beliefs. That's way too cognitive a definition. It's a new kind of human person that is neither Jewish nor Gentile. It's Jew and Gentile reconciled to God and thus to one another in what Paul says, in one body through the cross. Now this is a text which is very close to the beating heart of Paul and to his whole ministry. And he's quite if you will, stirred by this theme. As, the, as chapter 3 begins, he longs to pray. What Paul wants to do at the beginning of chapter 3 is pray for his Gentile readers. Right? He starts in verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. But what happens here is the mere mention of the word Gentiles, which is Paul's whole life mission. At the mention of that word, he breaks off. He can't finish the sentence. 
And he won't even actually pray until verse 14. And so what our text is, is a digression. It's a digression on the glory of God's surprising mercy to the Gentiles. And there are no digressions like Paul's digressions. The stuff that just falls out. So, I'd like to look at the text under two headings. The revelation of the mystery in the verses 1 through 7. And secondly, the purpose of the mystery in verses 8 through 11. They're in the back of your bulletin. So first, the, the revelation of the mystery. Notice the high, sort of sacred language Paul uses about the whole theme. In verse 2, he refers to the administration or the stewardship of God's grace, which he says was given to me, Paul, for you Gentiles. God has an administration. He has an ordered plan. But he's not just splashing grace around. There's an administration. And earlier in the book, Paul tells us that the purpose of God's administration is to sum everything up, to reorder everything, to stitch stuff back together. To reintegrate everything in Christ, the head. Things in heaven, things on earth, things visible, things invisible. This is an extraordinarily broad administration. And under that administration, Paul gets an administration of grace for the Gentiles. And in verse 3, again, this is Ephesians chapter 3. In verse 3, you can see how this came about. He says that God, by revelation made known to Paul something called a mystery. Notice, this is not a mystery. This is the mystery. Which is why Paul's so animated about it. In verse 4, he calls it the mystery of Christ. It's the mystery of which Christ is the substance. The mystery which Christ reveals. The mystery which Christ brings about. He still hasn't quite told us what it is. But he's told us that Christ is at the center of this mystery. And it was made known, Paul says, to me by revelation. What's he referring to? He's referring to the full implications of his Damascus Road experience. He didn't reason his way to this mystery. You can't get get at this mystery by looking at the world and, and thinking really hard. By logic. He received the gospel, he says, not through men, but through what he calls a revelation of Jesus Christ. And to this revelation, it is central that Paul preached Christ among the Gentiles. He still hasn't told us what the mystery is. In verse 5, he sort of builds up the suspense. He says, this is a mystery which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. It was not made known. But now, in the apostolic age, it has been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. We learn something else about the the New Testament use of this word mystery here. By mystery, Paul does not mean merely something mysterious. For him, the mystery is not a kind of 
It's not a kind of Agatha Christie puzzle to be solved. It's not that kind of mystery. It's something which was hidden in the plan of God. It was inaccessible. But now, in these last days, by revelation alone, it is revealed to the holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And having been revealed, it's an open secret. This is puzzling in some ways, and it has puzzled interpreters down through the centuries, actually, because we hold that the gospel is in the Old Testament, that the promises are there. I mean, that God would bless the Gentiles, that he would gather the Gentiles to Israel was not a new revelation. But how he was doing it now in Jesus Christ, that was startling. Contrary to expectations, us who are Gentiles will not have to become Jews. We're not going to have to submit to circumcision and the Old Testament laws, which placed a barrier between Gentiles and Jews. This is the force of Paul's intensity when he speaks of Christ creating a new entity, a third race, in which Jew and Gentile stand on even footing in one new man, one new body. And this is new. Shocking even to a first century Jew. Like having uncircumcised Persian astrologer priests worshiping Israel's Messiah even before he's publicly revealed to the whole nation. And so we get the content of the mystery in verse 6, which hopefully is no mystery to you at this point. The mystery hidden in God for ages, the mystery of Christ, now revealed is this, precisely this, Paul says. The Gentiles are fellow heirs. Now you may think that's anticlimactic. Because we take it for granted. I'll come back to that later. The Gentiles are fellow heirs. They're of the same body. They partake of the same divine promises. This means that you, that us, we inherit the promises, the blessings, the glory which belong to Israel. Notice, I think you can see this in the NIV, the repetition of the word together. Heirs together, members together, sharers together. We possess all this, he says, in Jesus Christ through the gospel. So that's what the mystery is. Now Paul tells us that he became a minister of this mystery by the gift of God's grace. Through the working of his power, you can see that in verse 7. What happened was the power of God confronted Paul, the blasphemer, on the Damascus Road and transformed him from a blasphemous and violent man by his own testimony into the apostle to the Gentiles. So what I want us to see here is this, that the great mystery, hidden for ages and generations, now revealed is not simply Christ. Nor is it simply Christ and the way of your salvation. It is not that Jesus died for your sins and you can go to heaven. That's not the mystery. It is Christ and his gospel which reconciles us Gentiles with Israel in a new man called the third race, the body of Christ. 
That is the mystery. And that has a different contour than the way American Christians talk about the gospel. If someone were to ask you 20 minutes ago, what is the mystery revealed in the gospel? But 99% of us will say, well, God sent his son to die for us. It's, it's a completely Americanized, individualized, democratic answer. You know who's at the center of that explanation of the mystery? You. That's not what the mystery is. The mystery is that through the gospel, God creates a reconciled people, a new humanity, a new ethnicity, a third race, neither Jew nor Gentile, by which you, a kid from New Jersey, can inherit all the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the mystery. The mystery is wide. So my second point here is the purpose of the mystery. You you can begin to see this in verse 8. So that's the mystery. What's it doing in the world? Now, Paul Paul is much older at the time that he writes Ephesians than the time he refers to about his conversion and his calling and God's power. But he's never really lost his sense of wonder. Wonder at the grace which confronted him and which called him. So he says in verse 8, Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people or all the Lord's saints. Here he he invents a word for his unworthiness. Literally the word is leaster. I'm less than the least. That's one word. It's, It's a Paulinism. Leaster. I'm the leaster. And you know, this is not... Self-loathing. You know, we're tempted to think, and I've preached on this from other texts in Paul, but we're tempted to think, you've got to be kidding me, Paul. You're the least of all the saints? Knock it off with the false humility, would you? Spare me. Right? But it is not, it is not that. It isn't, it, it isn't false humility. It isn't a kind of parading of his piety. It's not that. And it's not self-loathing either. It's not like Paul has a self-image problem. He's just profoundly aware of his sinfulness. And, and, and you know, he, he just remembers. He has a sharp sense of the unexpected wonder of grace, which not only saves us, but calls us. Right? One of the things this text teaches is that grace commissions. Grace calls. Paul never separates out and says, I was saved and then I got a calling. He was saved unto apostleship. And so he thinks of himself as the leaster of all God's people. There's a practical lesson here, I think. We should be hard on ourselves so God won't be hard on us in the day of judgment. The harder you are on yourself now, the better off you'll be later. We should be easy on others. So God won't be hard on us on the day of judgment. That's the temperament of the apostle. He's hard on himself. He's easy on others. His sinfulness affects him more radically than the sinfulness of other people. But it's a real problem when somebody else's sins are bothering you more than your own. That's a real problem. And notice this. Paul's sinfulness affects him more in his maturity than in his youth. There's a wonderful uh, quote of Luther I like to use in this connection. He says this. He says, young fellows are tempted by girls. Men who are a little older 
are tempted by gold. Then, when they're a little older, they're tempted by honor and glory. And then, those who are 60 years old say to themselves, What a pious man I have become. (laughs) So there are different temptations for different decades. And the temptations get subtler as the decades roll on. But Paul never falls into this kind of quiet self-congratulations. In his adult years, he's able to say, I'm the leaster of all the saints. Without parading a kind of false piety. The biggest problem we have is us. And, And this grace that God gave to the leaster was given, you can see this in verse 8, that he might preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. The riches are here called boundless or unfathomable. Some translations say they're unsearchable. Jesus Christ, in his person, who he is, and in his work, what he does, is this glorious, infinite, lavishing of the riches of God's own life upon us. All right, later Paul will say, I pray that God, the Father of glory, would strengthen you with power out of his glorious riches. Right, the unfathomable, unable to be sounded depths of the being of God appear in Jesus Christ. They're distilled into the person of Christ. That's why Paul can speak of the unfathomable riches of Christ. If we were to start now and discuss the person of Jesus Christ, we could never end. We could never end. There's an unfathomable depth to who he is. And Paul preaches out of that depth. He does not have a thin Christ. Now, I know that this text is not We're not the Apostle Paul. We don't have the same missions as he does, the same missionary calling. But we're all gathered up into the apostolic calling of the church. So we do need to cultivate a sense of where we are and who we are. I think, and I've mentioned this before, I think, as well, I think our sense of wonder at the unspeakable riches that are ours in Christ tends to get scoured away. Life scours it away. But there's also a kind of historical illusion which scatters it away. Right? Most of us, not all of us, but the vast majority of us have known nothing but Gentile Christians. Right? We're Gentiles, our families Gentiles, our churches are Gentiles, all the groups we go to are Gentiles, we talk Gentilese. Right? And so we just think it's natural and normal for a kid from New Jersey to be worshiping Yahweh, the God of this ancient Semitic tribe who called this ancient Mesopotamian guy named Abram. But it's an astonishing wonder that you're sitting here as a Western American non-Semite, if you are a non-Semite, right, worshiping this God. It can't be accounted for. So in verse 9, Paul wants to make plain, he says, with the plan or the administration of the mystery. 
So there's this plan. He's already told us in verse 1, the plan is to sum up all things in Christ. That plan begins in earnest with the creation of the one new man, the third race, the body of Christ. The gospel is cosmic. Someone asks you, what is the mystery of the gospel? You should give them a cosmic answer, in which you are, to be sure, included. But we should not be giving answers which begin and end with our own personal destiny. You want to give them a cosmic answer because God's doing cosmic things. So, the apostle's not quite finished pulling the curtain back on this mystery. It was hidden for ages, he says, at the end of verse 9, in God who created all things. Notice that reference to the creation. He's tying the very purpose of creation to the unmasking of this mystery. So he says in verse 10 that the God who made everything, the creator God, did so with the express purpose that now, right now in this age, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known Get this, through the church, through us, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The word for manifold here is the same word used as uh, in the Old Testament of Joseph's multicolored coat. And so Paul's saying something like this, God's many-colored, unspeakably beautiful wisdom is on display in the administration of this mystery, the mystery of the third race. We don't have time to do it now, but you can see that Paul is tying this to the very infinite depths of God's being. Christ is the unsearchable riches of God, and the wisdom of this plan is the manifold wisdom of God. So, We have a letter. It's an interesting letter. It's one of the earliest letters we have after the New Testament. And it's called the Shepherd of Hermas. It dates from the early 2nd century. And it's a a letter which had very wide influence. And in fact, in some circles, it was considered to be canonical. Though it was eventually, meaning a part of the New Testament text, though it was eventually decided that it was not to be included in the New Testament. And in this letter... There's a former slave named Hermas, and he receives a series of visions. And in his visions, he sees an aged woman who is increasingly becoming younger. It's an attractive vision for all of us when you get to this age, right? He he sees this aged woman, and as the vision progresses, the woman gets younger and younger. And at one point, a youth comes to him and asks, who do you think the aged woman from whom you received the book is. And Hermas says, the Sibyl? And the youth says, thou art wrong, she is not. And Hermas says, well, well, who is she? And the youth says, she is the church. Now this is, this is like 110 AD. She is the church. And I said to him, well, then why then is she aged? Because, he said, she was created before all things, therefore she is aged, and for her sake the world was framed. The world was framed for the sake of the church, for the sake of this mystery, 
for the sake of this one new man. And that's precisely what Paul's affirming here. God created everything so that his many-colored wisdom might now be made known through the church. This is the folly of churchless Christianity. As if the church were just downstream. There's simply no way to get the mystery of the community which Christ has formed out of the gospel. The worlds were framed for her. And to whom is it made known at the end of verse 10? It says to rulers and authorities. In other words, this mystery, this manifold wisdom is made known to rulers and authorities. All the angelic hosts, good and bad, are being instructed. You might think, well, what does that mean? It means this in the context of the book of Ephesians. Evil powers can see their doom in the church. All of their attempts to divide, to destroy, to alienate, they're overcome by the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile. By the way, this reconciliation is upstream from every other ethnic conflict in human history. Bosnians and Serbs, you know, and we could list them all. This is the fundamental problem with human history, that Jew and Gentile need to be reconciled together, and that God has done that in Christ. And so the bad angels, the, the, bad, the, the evil principalities and powers see in the church the end of their of their attempts to to destroy and subvert. And the good angels are here depicted as sort of peering in or as straining, the text implies, to see the mystery. In other words, what is happening in church and as church, not in, in and as the church, is something angels peer into because they're looking forward to the reconciliation of all things which has already begun in the church. And so the life of the church then is In the memorable phrase of one author, the life of the church is the graduate school for the angels. This is graduate school for the angels. All of this, verse 11 says, is in accord with God's purpose, his eternal purpose, which he realized in Christ the Lord. So the mystery has been unveiled. The epiphany of Christ has come, and it's being enacted in the life of the church. Now, I know this is a dense passage, Paul's that way, but it is a very important text in framing and shaping a people to think properly and in the right proportions. And I want to conclude with four quick, I think, practical applications. You've probably surmised them by now. But I want to say four things that this means for us practically. First, it means that the church can never forsake its rich root in the history of Israel. They are our fathers. You, you, you have heard me say this dozens of times, I know. But it can never be said too much. Right? Their history is our family history. Remember, sharers together, heirs together, partakers together. You don't need Ancestry.com. You need the Old Testament. Right? The third race is a people then of the whole Bible. We have to be a people who wrestle with the whole heritage because the whole heritage is ours in Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that we have to be a people who think of the church and really the church alone as central to human history. 
She is the reason the worlds were framed. Imagine going in to a local history department at a local university and saying this, all history is church history. You know, one of the great defects of historians, and I read, read them, and many good ones, is they don't ask enough questions about what's happening to the body of Christ in this country at this time, in this century, in the middle of this war. Right? It's all guns and germs and steel. Um, so all church history, all history is church history. We could refrain reframe our current political discourse and put it this way. We are nationalists. We are nationalists. But the nation in view is not America. It is the holy nation, the royal priesthood of the church. The fact that, we, that no one says this in public is astonishing to me. Christians can talk about nationalism, globalism, nationalism, globalism, nationalism, internationalism. And not one of them stands up and says, hey, there's a holy nation for whom the worlds were formed. Who is at the heart of the mystery of the reconciliation of the cosmos and the reintegration of all things. I'm that kind of nationalist. Nope. Just go along with the codes of the discourse as they throw them at us. And because that nation is spread throughout all tribes and tongues, we who are nationalists are also at the same time globalists. Are you a nationalist or are you a globalist? I'm both in a different universe of discourse from the way you're asking me the question. We're a people who are seeking the reintegration of all things. This is why it matters that you forgive that brother or sister in the church who offends you, that you don't find maneuvers to avoid them. That you don't let little roots of bitterness spring up. Because something is happening here and angels are peering into it. Third, the church is central to or integral to the gospel. She's not an afterthought. The gospel necessarily produces the holy church, Paul says. The mystery, the eternal mystery is the creation of this body as the graduate school for the angels. And fourth, the church is central to the Christian life. All of our rights of citizenship and sonship and access to God, all the blessing and the glory promised to Israel come to us Gentiles in and through this glorious body. And thus the whole testimony of the church, ancient, medieval, and reformational, is outside of the church, there's no ordinary possibility of salvation. The church is what God does. So I want to conclude by exhorting you in that which we, I believe, have done well, but I want to encourage us to continue to excel. A text like this means something like this. Give yourself wholly to the public worship of God. Give yourself, it's a kind, we can use, consider this a kind of Pauline New Year's resolution. Right? Give yourself to the service of this mystery, of this one new man, through its various ministries. We have lots of opportunities, missions, evangelism, worship, fellowship, VBS, youth, Christian education, prayer. Give yourself or order your life around the thing God has ordered his eternal purposes around. Give yourself to one another in this body. Love one another fervently from the heart. 
Because that's a command which rests on this strategy, this administration of God's grace. We are to give ourselves to relationships with one another, not because the church is a charming and helpful, assisting social organization, but she's a harbinger of the reconciliation of the cosmos. In the midst of this community, with all of our frailties, God is revealing his manifold wisdom to the heavenly powers. So we want to be a people who can say in truth the words of our closing hymn today. Actually, it's not our closing hymn today, but it's the words of what I intended to be our closing hymn today. I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode, the church our blessed Redeemer saved with his own precious blood. The love of Christ, the love of his kingdom, the love of his people, the love of his church, they're one bundle. In this way, Westminster Presbyterian Church can be an ongoing epiphany. You can, you can make epiphany continue in the darkness. Praise be to God for the mystery once hidden, now revealed in the apostolic gospel and lived in the church. Amen.